right, well, church family, coming up this Friday is Fall Fest, and you don't want to miss it. This Friday at 6 p.m., we start off our Fall Fest, and it is going to be a blast. Tons of things to do for kids and families, lots of food. There's no reason you should leave hungry. We're going to have a great time gathering together. You can go out into the atrium here in just a few moments, and we're dismissed, and you can grab one of these wristbands. They cost a dollar, and it will cover your entry fee. In fact, why don't you grab five or ten of them and just take them out and pass them out to friends and to family. Just a great way to invite people to come and be a part of our Fall Fest, a great event you don't want to miss. Also, we're going to have over 150 cakes that we're going to be giving away, and we need your help. So if you're a cake maker, if you're a baker, grab one of these things on your way out at the tent out in the atrium. Go ahead and fill this thing up. Bring your, ba- bring your best. Bring your A-game. It's a great way to serve our community. I'm not going to do that because we want people to come back. <laughs> I got to stay in my lane of strength, and that's not one of them. But y'all, it's going to be a great event for the family that you don't want to miss. You know, back there in the Great Depression of the 1930s, John Griffith got a job tending a railroad bridge that crossed the mighty Mississippi River. And every day, he would sit in his control room and he would oversee the raising and the lowering of this bridge. Well, one day, John's eight-year-old son brought him lunch and just spent the day watching his dad push buttons and pull levers to make that bridge go up for boats to go underneath and to go down for trains to cross the way. As the father and son were enjoying their picnic at lunchtime, John realized that the Memphis Express train was on its way to cross over the bridge He had to rush because currently the bridge was up. And so he went up the catwalk and made his way to the control center. And as he got there, he did what he was trained to do. He looked to the left and looked to the right of the river, looking for any possible boats that may cross. The next thing he did was he looked down to make sure there was nothing underneath the bridge. But what he saw was so horrific that his heart froze in panic. His eight-year-old son had climbed into the gearbox that controlled the raising and the lowering of the bridge. In that moment, John Griffith had a decision to make. Does he save the life of his son to the peril of the hundreds that are on the Memphis Express? Or does he sacrifice his one and only son to save the many? He closed his eyes, pulled the lever, and crushed his son. Just in time for the train to come across. As the train comes across, he looked up in the window and he saw the conductor staring at his pocket watch. He saw a businessman who was thumbing through the newspapers. He saw children eating scoops of ice cream and women who were sipping tea. And as the train passes by, he is crying out with tears in his eyes, Do you not know what I've done for you? Do you not realize I sacrificed my son to save your life? Do you not know? And just as quick as it happened, the train went off over the horizon, leaving John there with his dead son. This true story pictures what God has done for us in the gospel. 
The love of a father for his son and his willingness to give up his son's life so that others might be saved. As humanity is just going throughout life unaware of what's been done or they're aware and they just don't care. They don't realize the greatest sacrifice that was made for them. Most people sit idly by, not giving a second thought to what was done for them. That God the Father knew there was only one way for man to be saved. And so Jesus Christ, the Son of God, willingly climbed into the gearbox. He gladly went to the cross where he would be crushed for the sins of mankind. He went to the cross so that you might be rescued. That is what God has done for us in the gospel. And that is what is Simon Peter is driving home in 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. As you're turning there, we're going through a sermon series as a church entitled Imperishable. We're walking through Simon Peter's first letter that he wrote to the five provinces that are scattered throughout modern day Turkey. Now so far in the first seven verses, Simon Peter has carried and and he has addressed some very significant weighty doctrine. We've gone through this series of the past five weeks and we've touched on the doctrines of election, verse one, foreknowledge, verse two, the resurrection, verse three, the trinity, verse three, the inheritance we will receive, verse four, faith, verse five, sanctification, verse seven. Peter is front-loading his letter with the gospel. Why? Because there's nothing more important than this. There's nothing more important than salvation. Eternity is at stake. Yet simultaneously, Simon Peter, before he starts giving out commands to obey throughout the rest of his letter, he is casting out a compelling why. Why should we obey? You see, our why of obedience is that in light of what God has done for us in the gospel, we are compelled, we desire, we want to obey. How do you get someone to do what they don't want to do? The answer is you win their heart. I'm not sure if this is true for you, but when I was a kid, at times my parents would say, Kenneth, it's time to go do your chores. And I would respond with, well, why? Sometimes my parents would respond with, because I said so. Okay? Well, what we see here is that Simon Peter is giving us a different reason for obedience. It's not because I said so. It's because I love you. Because God has won our hearts in the gospel, he is giving us a compelling reason why you and I are to obey. So before he gets to be holy, before he gets to wives be subject to your husbands, before he gets to humble yourselves, before he gets to put away your hypocrisy, he is identifying, he is displaying the gospel and the salvation of what God has done for us, God's great rescue of us through Jesus. So let's start by defining salvation, okay? It's a big word. Again, we're not gonna be afraid of big words. Salvation quite simply means to save or to rescue. Well, Kenneth, to rescue us from what? Well, the scriptures teach us God's salvation has rescued us from sin, from death, from hell, and from Satan. 
You see, salvation is the common introduction and theme that we see here in chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Because Peter is emphasizing this salvation, verse 5. Salvation, verse 9. Salvation, verse 10. Jesus is our salvation, and he has rescued us. You see, God's great rescue plan was fulfilled through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ today, you have experienced this miracle. You have been born again, verse 3, to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You have been guarded through faith until the end of time. You have a joy in your trials, and you are having your faith tested so that it might result in the praise and the honor and the glory when Jesus comes back. However, God has done even more for you. Notice these three ways that God's great rescue has worked for us. The first is this. God's great rescue has opened our eyes. Look at verse 8. Simon Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter is praising these believers for loving Jesus, loving someone they have never seen. They've never seen Jesus with their own eyes. These first century Christians, these first century Christ followers that were scattered throughout the five provinces of modern day Turkey, they were just like us. They've never seen Jesus in the flesh, but verse 8, they still love him. But verse 8, they still believe in him. You see, their experience was much different than Simon Peter's. Simon Peter not only saw Jesus with his eyes, he spent three years of his life with his Lord. Simon Peter was there carrying a basket, collecting leftovers after Jesus fed the 5,000. Simon Peter was the one who walked on water with Jesus. He ate meals with Jesus. He listened to Jesus' sermons, not on podcasts. He listened to Jesus' sermons in person. He knew his voice. He knew his facial expressions. He knew the words that he would emphasize. You see, Peter even saw Jesus transfigure into his glorified body up on top of a mountain. But this is true for the other disciples as well. John the Apostle wrote in his first letter, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, speaking of Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You see, the disciples, they knew Jesus. They had seen Jesus. They had experienced Jesus. We even see this after the resurrection. The disciples are cowering in fear. And you get to John chapter 20, they've got the door locked as they are hiding. Why? Because they're next. Jesus has just been crucified, they were his followers, and they were anticipating, we're about to go to the cross just like him. So they're, they're hiding in fear. And ten of the disciples are there. Judas is not there because he has died, and for whatever reason, Thomas is not in the room. Jesus appears, and he speaks to his disciples, and they touch him, and they celebrate because he is alive. Well, Jesus departs, and some time passes, and Thomas shows up. And the disciples tell Thomas, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. He, he, he's alive. And Thomas said, unless my fingers touch the nail marks in his hands, unless my fingers touch his side, I will not believe. 
Eight days later, Thomas and the other ten are gathered together in a room, door locked, and Jesus appears. And he comes and says, Thomas, come touch my hands. Come touch my side. Thomas confesses, my Lord and my God. And Jesus responds to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you catch that? Jesus is saying, you are blessed even if you've never seen me with your eyeballs. Even if you have not visually, personally engaged me. Blessed are those who have believed and have not seen me. So here in verse 8, Peter is celebrating the faith of those who have not visually seen Jesus with their eyes. And yet they still believe. That we never get over the, the, the miracle of our salvation. That we never grow calloused or lukewarm over what Jesus has done for us. Because we came to know Jesus before we ever knew him, we were spiritually blind. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing. They can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. All of us, you and I, before we put our faith in Jesus, this was our spiritual state. We were spiritually blind. We could not see the gospel. But when someone opened their mouth, when they told us the gospel, when they shared with us the good news of Jesus, the Spirit made those words make sense to our hearts. He convicted of us of our sins. He pointed us to Jesus so that Ephesians 1.18, we might see with our hearts. We see with our hearts. And though we do not see Jesus with the eyes in our head, we can clearly see Jesus with the eyes of our hearts revealed in Scripture. This is what faith is. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of, watch this, things not seen. Yet notice what accompanies this type of faith, verse 8 rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You see, these believers, they were experiencing persecution. They were about to go through even greater trials, all because of the gospel. And they're suffering for the sake of Jesus, the one who they have never visually seen. But because of their faith in Jesus, they are rejoicing with joy that is so great that Peter calls it inexpressible. It's unspeakable. The joy that they have in their hearts is so significant, you can't put it into words. You see, when you believe upon Jesus, God puts his abundant, overflowing joy within your heart despite the circumstance. Don't miss this. Unspeakable joy is the fruit of finding God all satisfying. Are you experiencing that unspeakable joy As a follower of Jesus, do you find yourself just overflowing with joy? I have found three things that typically rob believers of this unspeakable joy. The first is busyness. 
our calendars, our schedules can interrupt us from finding God all-sufficient and satisfying. We're busy taking kids to soccer practice and to school and running errands, and we just have such busy lives, we never take the time to stop and to bask in who the Lord is. Well, it's not just busyness, it's distractions. Well, uh, the amazing technology that we have in our pockets is amazing. But with the notifications just always going off and your phone dinging in your ear, these are things that keep you from just resting and finding God all satisfying. I think a third thing is prayerlessness. If you find yourself in regards to the quantity of your prayer life, it's getting smaller and smaller. And the brief amount of time you give to prayer alone with Jesus, and it's not the quality that it used to be, these are things that are robbing you of finding God all satisfying. And so if the joy that is within your heart is not overflowing, it's not what Simon Peter calls inexpressible joy, it's because either because of distraction, because of busyness, or because of prayerlessness, you have found your heart wavering and even moving away from the Lord. You see, first century believers, they were suffering for Jesus, and yet they still believed. They still loved Jesus. They rejoiced with inexpressible joy. Unspeakable joy comes from seeing with your heart what you have not seen with your eyes yet. But there is coming a day, y'all, when Jesus is coming back. There's coming a day in which your eyes will show you what you have believed. This is why the Apostle John says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, Look, what a great word, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will what? See him. You will see Jesus. There's coming a day in which you will no longer walk by faith, you will walk by sight. The one and only, the King of kings and Lord of lords will be in your presence. You will see him for who he is. You will be able to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. You're going to see him for who he is. And that's true for everybody. Revelation chapter, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, there's coming a day in which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you bend your knee now or you will bend your knee later. And here's, there's coming a day in which you're going to see him. And when we behold him, when he is revealed, that is a great day or a bad day. If you are in Christ, that is a great day. We receive our reward. We receive our inheritance. We celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ because we're going to see him. But if you don't know Jesus, if you are not abiding in Christ, that's a bad day. And you will weep for all of eternity. So hear me today. Come to Jesus. Put your faith and trust in him. And if today you don't know Christ, ask for God to open the eyes of your heart so that you might see Jesus. But I also want you to see, number two, that God's great rescue has given to us what we cannot lose. Look at verse 9. 
Simon Peter says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, for the believer, our love, our joy are full because we possess salvation. This word obtaining, it means that we have received something right now, it's in your possession, and it carries on into the future. In Christ, we have a salvation of our souls that is both now and forever. It is already and it's not yet your salvation certainly began before the foundation of the world, but it is also something that has been given to you by God that you possess right now. And the best news of all, you can't lose it. We'll unpack eternal security more in the future, but if you're a believer in Jesus, God has given you his salvation and he will never take it away. In John chapter 10, Jesus addressed this very issue in which he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they will follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one, is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Your salvation is safe in the hands of God. No one can snatch you out of God's omnipotent grip. He has you. And God Almighty has promised, I am going to hold on to your salvation. And not even Satan himself can snatch you out of the hands of Jesus. That's good news for you, is that in Christ you have a salvation that you possess that you can never lose. Which means as you're commissioned off this campus in a few minutes this morning, you have to leave this campus with confidence in Christ. You no longer have to worry or be dismayed or have anxiety if you're banking, if you're trusting your soul upon the work of Jesus for you. He wants you to have confidence in your salvation. This is why John says, I write these things to you so that you might know that you have eternal life. You can have confidence that you are in Christ because God does not want you living your life in worry, fear, or concern about whether or not you belong to him. When I was in college, I went through a season where I really wrestled with this whole idea of being a believer. For six months, I was anxious. I was a, I was a new babe in Christ and I would pray the prayer of salvation every day and pray it harder one day after the next. God, I really believe. But then I would just doubt, am I really in Christ? And after just months of agonizing and anxiety, I remember driving, and it's a specific spot. It's amazing how the Lord shows up in vehicles. And it's there that the Lord just impressed upon me. Kenneth, you're looking at yourself. Look at me. Look at Jesus. Look what I have done for you. You're looking in the wrong place. You see, God is saying, take your eyes off of yourself and fix them upon Jesus. And when you are banking, when you are resting, when you are trusting in the work of Jesus on your behalf, you can have confidence that your salvation is eternally secure in the almighty, omnipotent hand of Jesus. In Christ, God has given you what you cannot lose. Number three, God's great rescue has placed our feet on the shoulders of others. Look at verse 10. Simon Peter says, concerning this salvation, 
The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You see, you and I did not arrive at the gospel on our own. There were those who came before us who boldly, faithfully, lovingly opened their mouths and you and I heard the gospel and we believed. We stand on the shoulders of others. But notice those of whom we are standing on their shoulders. Number one, it's the prophets. These Old Testament prophets, verse 11, from Moses to Malachi, the prophets searched. They inquired carefully the scriptures. They're seeking to identify who is this Messiah. They eagerly wanted to know who he is, verse 11, and when he's coming, verse 11. Who is he? When is he coming? These prophets longed for the day when the, when the promised Messiah would appear. Who is the one whose government will be placed upon his shoulders? Who is the one whose body would never see decay? Who is the one who would be betrayed and be, be pierced in his hands and in his feet? Who is the one who would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver? Who is the man of sorrows acquainted with grief? These Old Testament prophets, they searched the scriptures. They studied the word of God. They longed to know, who is this Christ? When is he coming? There was an aching. There was an intense desire to know who he is and when he's coming. And Paul is telling these first century believers, and he is telling us today, you know who he is. His name is Jesus. He is the one the prophets were looking for. He is the one the prophets were driving us to when they wanted to know when he was going to show up and what's he going to be like and what is his name going to be and what's going to be happening in the world all around him. What is that going to be? And Simon Peter says, you know him. His name is Jesus. He is the one the prophets were longing for. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 13, 17, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You see, Jesus is the promised one that the prophets longed to see. And yet, do you see here in the text who the prophets were serving? Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Peter's telling these Christians, hey, listen, God has revealed to the prophets that they were not serving themselves, but they're serving you. Yeah, we want to know who the Messiah is. We want to know who he is. When's he coming? What's this Messiah going to be like? But I also want you to realize that God revealed to these prophets that they were serving you. Now, I can just imagine that when this letter from Simon Peter is scattered throughout these five provinces, someone gathers in the church and stands up to read this letter, and he gets to verse 12, and someone in the back says, stop, wait a minute, read that again. You're telling me that all of the prophets 
knew that they were serving us? You see, Simon Peter is saying, listen, the prophets came and they prepared the way. They were pointing to the Messiah, but they realized that it was not about them. They were serving us. God was sending his prophets so that they might declare, they might point to Jesus and serve you and I today to see who he is. And we see who God is in the person and the work of Jesus. God revealed to the prophets, they were serving you. But I also want you to see the second shoulders that we stand on are the evangelists. Verse 12 says, those who preached the good news to you. These preachers possibly could have been one or several of the apostles. uh, And yet, whoever these people were, they went. And they preached the good news to these believers. Aren't you thankful that someone opened their mouth and told you about Jesus? Someone opened their mouth. They preached the gospel. You heard and then you believed. And so now you're standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before you because they boldly opened their mouths and shared the gospel. So here's my question. When the time comes when you're dead and gone, who's standing on your shoulders? What are you laboring for in this life? Do you see yourself as a missionary, as one who has been called to preach the gospel, verse 12? One who's going to be an evangelist. Well, Kenneth, I can't stand in front of on a stage in front of thousands of people. Guess what? You don't have to. God has intentionally and strategically placed you in your family, in your neighborhood, on your ball team, so that you might build relationships with people and point them to Jesus. This is why we exist as a church. We exist to invest in people who will impact their world for Jesus. You and I are standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. And so now I want to invite you to join me on laying a greater foundation to see the gospel go further and faster so that once you and I are dead and gone and forgotten, the gospel of Jesus Christ marches forward. Lay that foundation. Make much of Jesus. The third shoulders that we stand on here in the text is the Holy Spirit. It says, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The Holy Spirit convicted us of sin when we heard the gospel. We realize I am a sinner and I am in need of a savior. And the Holy Spirit takes the gospel that some preacher, that your parent, that some small group leader, that your coach shared with you. And all of a sudden, it clicked. It made sense. He opened your eyes so that you might experience salvation. And when you first believed, angels watched and they were amazed. Verse 12, angels stoop down. They look upon the salvation of sinners and they are amazed. These are millions and millions of angels who've never sinned, who have no need of salvation, But they look with great interest at the salvation of sinners and they are amazed at what they see. They rejoice when one sinner repents and believes, but they're also astounded that God would save us. Quite really, the text says that they're stooping down and they're looking upon us in amazement at the moment we believe upon Jesus. I got to experience this last night. For weeks my son Nathan has been asking questions. He wants to become a follower of Jesus. We've been answering those questions, being patient, just saying, buddy, when's time? Last night he pulled Christy and I aside and he said, 
I'm ready to follow Jesus. And like I always do, I tried to talk him out of it. I said, buddy, Jesus, is, he's not interested in half-hearted followers. He said, I'm following Jesus. And I'm praising God this morning that such a great salvation has reached down and touched my family. And the angels looked upon that moment and they were amazed. What about you? Have you come to the point in time in your life in which you have given your life to Jesus? If you have, the angels marvel at what God has done. And this morning, God has put you in a community in Shelby County with 210,000 people who are in desperate need of the gospel. And God has placed you and I here for such a time as this. The question is, will you and I open our mouths and share the gospel of Jesus Christ? If we do, God is faithful and he will save sinners just like us. This is a great salvation.